Hey everyone, it's Tom here. Welcome back to another episode of Alpha Metallica. Today we are going to be looking back on the ginormous two-part documentary, A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. This, of course, was uh, directed by Adam Dubin. This came out in 92, November 92. This is um, a two-parter that looks at the, you know, the history and the making of the Black Album and then follows what happens when they let loose that record on the world and, you know, toured for the best part of three years. We're going to be going through, I mean, it is just an absolutely mammoth uh, entity. So we're kind of, you know, myself and the guest, we're going to, we've, we've watched it a few times, we've made notes, we're just going to riff on it, we're going to work our way through. I'm sure most of you people listening out there have watched it, you know, a lot on the Twitter, at MetallicaPod, you know, a lot of people saying they had it on Laserdisc, it never left the VHS player or whatever like that. I mean, I'm more of a, you know, I've watched the sort of 4K upgrade on YouTube over the past couple of weeks, that, that, that's my kind of take on it. So we're going to be doing that. Just before we get into that, of course, you can follow the show at MetallicaPod. Get in touch with me, MetallicaPod at gmail.com, like today's guest did. If you want to discuss something, if you want to take on a topic, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. I'm eager to have people on. So, yeah, reach out to me there. Or find me an idea and we'll uh, we'll arrange a little Skype date. Uh, if you enjoy the show and you want to give back to the show, there's many things you can do. You can go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Check out the reviews that people have left. You can, um, you know, tell a friend about the show the old-fashioned way. Patreon's there as well, uh, patreon.com forward slash alphabetallica so that basically allows you to uh, support the show monetarily and in return you get a you know, pay-per-view a premium access to alphabetallica content so at the time of uh, us recording this episode if you support you get apps access to the mega histories of jason um well, we did the Jason Newstead one, but the Cliff Burton one is the second one. Uh, also, Rob Kellis, the YouTube superstar, was on. And, you know, always doing fun things over there on the Patreon. And this would obviously have been on there months before it drops on the main channel as well. So, um, yeah, today I'm joined by, uh, by a new listener. He's not actually heard Metal at Your Podcast. Alf Metallica was the busting of his cherry, as it were. Mark, how's it going? Hey, John. Yeah, not too bad, man. Thanks for having me. No, great, great to have you. And what is your history with Metallica briefly? Like, when did you start getting into them? Um, so, I guess, um, so I'm a, probably a little bit older than you, but I was first into kind of Nirvana and Guns N' Roses. I mm. think Guns N' Roses are probably an entry-level rock band for everyone. Absolutely. Kind of stepping stone to further things. Um, and songs like uh, Bad Obsession, where you hear like a heavier guitar riff. I was like, oh, I like the heavier stuff. Yeah, then, well, yeah uh, but the harmonica yeah. in Bad Obsession as well. Like, there's a lot of duality there. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think like Appetite for Destruction was brilliant, getting through that. And so, yeah, it was Nirvana, uh, Guns N' Roses, and then Nirvana kind of made me want to pick up the guitar and start playing. And then um, it was really just a black album. It was my first kind of uh, experience with Metallica. And the Sandman, Sabatru, all of that. And that kind of took my guitar, wanting to play guitar to another level. Um, and ever since then, it's the only band I've really ever cared about the actual people in mm. the band that much. Um, you know, look, read, read, read as many books as I can, watch documentaries, etc. Um, and then this leads us on to what we're going to talk about today is Year and a Half in Life in Metallica was uh, how I met who's uh, a guy in college who's still my best friend today. He introduced me to the VH, double VHS tape, um, and we just watched it religiously. It's um, it's something that I quote uh, every week. I mean, just, there's, uh, there's like there's nothing like it. Like with so many things that are just Metallica, like they just do it better than anyone else. Like you know, I, I follow a lot of hard rock bands like yourself, heavy metal, whatever, mm. and 
Just what an offering this is. Three and a half hours. It's longer than Titanic. And it just goes all over the world. Interviews of everyone. The insight. And it's edited in quite a sort of frenetic way, isn't it? There's a a narrative. There's a through line. But it will just cut from Kirk in the guitar store. And then suddenly James is hunting in the bayou. And now they're at Wembley. And it's just everything. Yeah, I think that's what just made me fall in love with them. There was just so much to them. It's like, this is, for the people that haven't seen it, which I'm sure is only a few... Yeah, go go and watch it, it, listeners. Come back to this after. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. Exactly. Press pause, come back. But Mm -hmm. it's not some kind of monster. It's a completely different (laughs) beast from that. There's a a definite emotional narrative to that movie. Um, Whereas this is just, yeah, it's close to four hours of just everything. They're right. This was their jump from just the fresh band that everyone knew of to the worldwide stars that they are today that Lars Ulrich always wanted to be that kind of Def Leppard style megastar. Yeah. And this was kind of their, their breaking point for them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, as I said in the intro today, we are going to go through both parts and just you know, point out, I mean, there's, there's so much I want to talk about. I mean, there's, there's so many legendary moments in that. And just before we start, I uh, just forgot to give a shout out to James Redfern, who recently uh, pledged on Patreon. So thank you so much for doing that, James. But we begin the documentary, Mark. My Friend of Misery's playing, and, you know, there is this kind of, there are a few artistic flourishes uh, in the piece, and one of them is the smelting, the the foundry, uh, the, you know, the Metallica logo being just like, uh, you know, just kind of hammered from pure iron and ore. Like, what what do you make of this? Because this imagery returns a few times, like, this ends the documentary as well, and it's kind of the intro point. Like, uh, it's a nice choice. Yeah, I think it's just, I think it's just setting up that this is at the time, I suppose, heavy metal. Mm. So I don't, they always kind of try to get away from that fresh kind of stuff. So what's more heavy metal than that scene? Yeah, the massive chunk pure, of metal, pure literal metal. metal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just so being thrashed yeah, out. Much, yeah, as it were, it, it exactly, is, it is, just, it's the epitome. Like, yeah, and I think that that kind of sends for the whole kind of recording process of that, that album, just thrashing everything out the way they did. Mm-hmm. Um, getting together as a band, seeing the jam together was brilliant. Like yeah. I always had the, like, as, as I say, that's kind of like my first um, foray into Metallica. Then as you get to know them better, it never used to be like that. It would just be James and Lars sorting stuff out and then everyone else came in later and that was it. But seeing them play together to capture that kind of live element that they had. So I think that, yeah, you know, thrashing a piece, smashing a piece of heavy metal about is uh, mm-hmm. uh, quite apt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much so. And, you know, like like millions of, of movies before them, it's the classic narrative trick. You, you start in the future and then you leap back in the past. So we're here yeah. on the record stores, on the release of the Black Album. And like, what a, you know, what a wonderful thing. I, I mean, I was born in 92. So when I was in secondary school, the MP3 was king. You know, this sort of stuff doesn't really happen. Like, mm-hmm. I, I remember going after school. The only time I ever did it to get System of a Down's Hypnotize in 2005 Right. And it was a day it yeah. came up. It was in Music Zone in Birmingham. But there wasn't a queue. No, no, no one was rabid to get it. Everyone's on iTunes. <laughs> but here, I just love seeing I just love seeing how fervent these people are. Just how, how, how the fever in their eyes. And why shouldn't they be excited? It's the, it's the fucking Black Album coming out. Like, Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's like, I, I, so I was born in 78. Mm. So I was used to going to record stores um, and just looking at album art. 
So you'd look at an Iron Maiden cover and go, that looks cool. Yeah. I'll buy that. So it was just kind of rather than just, you know, it's everything's so disposable these days. You, you don't have access to the back catalogs of bands like you that you do now. Um, so it would have to be going through record stores and stuff like that. And then I, I seem to remember a few albums. I think Prodigy Fat the Land, when that came out, okay, I remember yeah. that was a midnight release at some stores. So, you know, even in, over here in mild mannered England, we still had a few kind of times like that where we yeah. feel like, yeah, excited about an album release. Funnily, funnily enough, today is the anniversary of Oasis's "Be Here Now" dropping, which I again oh, right. I know was a you know giant release, and you know MTV and VH1 were covering that, and there's been some stuff on YouTube, but but yeah, um, you know, you guys know this footage. We see all the people there. There's a dude talking about like you know this is the re- they talk about the reality of the world and stuff like that. There's some shit you can't say that they go into. I'm gonna listen to this band when I'm 80. Yeah. Um, the Rome guy as well, which. You you have never listened Rome to Metal on your podcast, <laughs> but they kind of have memed that guy to death, which is great. And you know, I lo- I love seeing all these shots, and you get that throughout, don't you? You get they they spend quite a lot of times with the fans, like you know, they'll they'll be snapshots yeah. here and there of of them giving their own insight. I think that was that comes down to their attitude of how they wish they'd been treated when they were fans. Mm. So they I think it was um, in the uh, Mick Wall book that they kind of address that and say they want, they made sure they were seeing every fan signing every bit of memorabilia and just kind of the fans are important. They always call them the Metallica family. Yes. So that, you know, everyone's so important to them. And, you know, we'll probably touch on it later about the fans at the concerts and stuff, but they are so pumped, overexcited at times. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Well, to how we are. Well, well, yeah. We'll <laughs> get to, we'll get to Lars. Here, yeah. We'll get to Lars signing that girl's ass who who was in prison yes. <laughs> two times when they last came. Like, what's her story like? But um, but yeah, we uh we now push back ten months earlier. This is when you know the black album's being recorded. This is essentially what part one is. Part one is mostly focused in the studio and you know the madness of this record and how long it took and uh, Jason rocking that kind of granny glasses and ponytail combo that you see in the Nothing Else Matters video and stuff like that. Like it's he looks strong. Look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very very iconic and uh you know you get to see all these songs going through the gestation period into the live sections and you know Lars saying that you know when he heard Sandman he knew that the record was going to be a motherfucker and stuff like that and I mean the, the, the footage is amazing isn't it it's so candid when they're writing and just just hearing them talk about this stuff yeah there doesn't seem to be kind of any direction as such they just leave the cameras rolling for things to unfold in front of them um you know it catches so many moments that like i said earlier just turned into catchphrases and things i don't even understand like uh bob rock giving laughs instructions of can you make it a bit more peppery off the top yes. on the drums i have no idea what that means no i don't know if lars or bob knows what that means um but he bob's kind of work ethic through all of it he seems to treat them like naughty children mm-hmm. he hasn't got time for their crap a lot of the time and he pulls the best out of them he doesn't put too much of himself on the record as such he just gets the best out of each of them um that he can completely yeah i mean uh you know yeah he comes in early on rocking a nice rickenbacker and he talks to the old bands he was producing i mean let's go to hawaii as, as we're all familiar with uh we yeah. see a dr feelgood um platinum disc is shown as well uh kirk discusses writing the sandman riff and it's just you know, it's testament to the genius of Metallica, isn't it? That Kirk wrote that riff, but it was Lars who was like, oh, no, no, put this at the end. You know, it's kind of a fine example of the synergy in the band. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was never all, uh, I was never a huge fan 
of Lars to begin with. I was just thought he was a bit arrogant and cocky, mm. and um, I kind of sided with Kirk, like the meek kind of guy that sure. was a bit of a nerd, turned up, shredded a bit of guitar, and left. Um, but as you get older and you watch these documentaries again and again, you pick up more and more, and just seeing how uh, the strings that he pulls, he is literally the puppet master of that band. <laughs> yeah, he um, is. And just kind of chopping everything up and just working hard, you know, working, like, like they say, he's working till 4am, 5am on that album, and just chopping those parts up with Bob Rock. And his vision for what the other guys kind of laid out is brilliant. You, you know you can't fault him at all no and the, you know he is working late but he's also arriving late as well and i love the scene early on of lars speeding through la and you know it's cutting to the guys kind of mad in the studio and just a bit of sort of historical context as well the gulf war's happening at the time and it just like you often yeah. see it in the background just like crazy warfare that i'm sure james is getting a little bit harder like just it, it's a part of his brain and obviously like don't tread on me and, and, and gulf war is kind of touched upon in that but um it just kind of puts you yeah. into this early 90s sphere also early 90s we're a long way from me too mark a lot of pornography in the studio yes i was going to say there, there might be a few moments in this documentary that haven't aged so well uh, yeah jason's hair the porn yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah um i'm not sure because i know that metallica always, always, will always have a lot of control over how they're seen in the world in the media so um like with some kind of monster there was lots of backs and forth with Lars of what can be in and what can't be in. And I think at this time they were probably maybe it's a, it's a watered down Metallica. In my opinion, it's mm. not that alcoholica kind of Metallica. No. So I think a lot of that stuff is, you know, maybe the porn stuff wouldn't make it into a modern day Metallica kind of documentary. <laughs> I don't, I don't, um, I don't think so. <laughs> maybe they weren't even looking then. I mean, they had wives and, you know, it's different. Th th these are guys still in their like mid to late twenties as well, who are just yeah, on top of the it, world. It, it, it's weird being older than them now. Yes. Watching that documentary. So obviously when I first watched it, I was, I was like 14, 15. Mm -hmm. So these were adults to me. And I thought everything they did was cool. <laughs> that was it. I was like, oh, brilliant. Look at that stack of porn that they've got. Oh, yeah. I wish I had a guy I mean, yeah. who that sort of thing to me. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so yeah. much of it. I guess, you know, obviously it's pre-internet, but it just kind of floored me. Kind of how many magazines. It's like a little library there. But, um, but yeah, it, there's... It, it's, it's, in, it's interesting as well that, that with the porn delivery, there's that you see the first seeds of the hazing that they're talking oh, about yeah. with Jason. Because they say, like, obviously Jason's going for the, the, uh, the gay magazines, etc. But... James and Bob do get a bit of a hazing in there as well. But, um, yeah, it's quite, like I say, I wouldn't have known about the hazing kind of stuff in the, in the early days, but now reading back on everything, you kind of start to pick up on all these little moments uh -huh, uh -huh. that got caught on camera. And just in terms of the music as well, there's so much, there's, um, there's, a, there's kind of a variation jam solo on Nothing Else Matters before that, which is a completely different take, which is just kind of, you know, loose on the fretboard, not really thinking about it. We learn as well that a lot of the titles for these songs have been around a while, Sad But True, Struggle Within. Apparently Enter Sandman yeah. has been their longest, uh, which, which, which intrigued me. Um, really like the moment where the Make-A-Wish Foundation kid uh, with cancer comes oh, in um, and, and jams with them. John Smith. John Smith. John Smith. Yeah, yeah, it's a lovely so, moment. Yeah. yeah, I, you know, mad props to that guy because if I'd have turned up with a guitar to play along with Metallica, Metallica I'd have frozen. I don't think I'd have been. I'd have been no. so just awestruck by being with them. So he he done brilliantly. Yeah, uh, he did. He, did. Uh, he, play, he, he, play, he played it down a little bit, 
saying he can play a couple of bits and then just bangs out four horsemen yeah. with, uh, with ease. No, no, he, he was great. Oh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's just, like we said before, there's so many of just these moments uh, packing up on top of each other, piling, and it's just kind of like James's dad drops in. Virgil, yeah, yeah. who nowadays, that's James. That's 2020 James. Yeah. They look pretty much yeah, identical. Like, you know, and obviously they so had... Again, a, that's they, yeah. Yeah, that, that's something I wouldn't have known about that that was a big deal, him being there when I first watched it, and then obviously getting to learn the history um, of him being so proud of him and just, yeah, um, things like that. And uh, I don't know if you, did you notice on the dartboard who was on the dartboard? Uh, uh, yeah, who was it again? I think it's, I, I'm sure, because obviously VHS quality isn't brilliant, but I no. think it's John Bon Jovi. Yes, that, that would make sense. Which yeah. makes a lot of sense. They've had a lot of beef <laughs> since like, you know, Donington days and stuff like that. And th- there is so much yeah. in the in the background. It's like a goddamn Pixar film. I was always like looking to see what I could see. And there's one thing I saw in the studio yeah. where there was uh, a sheet on the wall um, that said it was Bob's mistake count. And there was like a tally underneath, yeah. <laughs> uh, which isn't really referenced. Like, obviously, you can tell they're all getting each other. And I think Lars and Bob didn't talk for like a year after the Black album uh just because it was so tense or whatever you know in spite of it being a giant success but um you do you know you do get the feeling sometimes of like uh i I love when lars and james are going at bob it's like two children you know scolding their dad and they're ripping into his fashion on the back and stuff like that but you know they've been in the trenches making this record like Mm. you know and you you see um just the the level of detail of the the drum track or, or the vocal airing or whatever and just you know, this this wasn't what they did in the Sweet Silent Studio. They just, you know, clocked in and banged out sort of thing. But this is a this is a different type of record with Bobby Rock at the helm, I guess. Yeah, I suppose the, the production levels on this are crazy. So for me, when I was first trying to play guitar, I couldn't work out why it didn't sound anything like what I could hear on the CD. Then you go and see this, and then you get the left channel, the right channel, the thickener, and so many layers and layers and layers of guitars. So, you know, they're turning up and you see the table that Lars has got of all the things he can hit. They're using a gun to cock as a kind of rhythm instrument, uh, going through hundreds of guitars. So, you know, the production on this compared to the obviously the earlier albums was just uh, it's just been ramped up like tenfold. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's uh, cuts to Jason in the car uh, talking about the band selling out, and um, also cuts to Jason playing an arcade machine as well, and just kind of there's lo- lots of little kind of incidental things that come in the middle that I really like, and again, uh, <laughs> a lot of naked chicks uh, in the studio as well that you can see just taped all around, <laughs> and uh, you know, some some great stuff here. Interesting section as well about. Um, uh, Bob talking about the composition of the bass and that idea, and then you have them going to Vancouver and they get out of LA. And uh, I really liked when um, James was talking outside the studio and Bob comes out and interrupts them. And James like, "Peace, man! Like, can I try this dress yeah. on?" <laughs> like, and he's just grabbing. The, grabbing yeah. James has always I've always thought of Hetfield as just he's really quick witted. He's a very very funny man. Um, you know. It, any kind of studio stuff you watch, the quips he has throughout this entire documentary, he's just so quick-witted. Um, and obviously, I think he deflects a lot. You know, a lot of it is kind of putting up those walls, not letting anyone in, and just using humour as a defence. But yeah, it's so again, I've said a lot. There's so many quotable lines from Hetfield that you know, going from the start, the you know, uh, go sing it. Mm-hmm. Lars wants him just to sing a little bit. 
and he's like, if I, um, if you ever need a drummer, and he's like, if I ever need a drummer, you know, I wouldn't ask you to drum if your arm fell off, buddy. And he just, <laughs> and, you know, he cracks me up. You know, th- like you mentioned with um, uh, Jason, I've he's never sounded so good playing the the um, the riffs when you just hear him with his ten inches of foam kind of wall. That's that. Yes, his they're little section, about that rhythm section. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. he's they're, when they're talking about like the rhythm section that everyone else has figured out, but they've only just learned about it. Um, and I don't know if that's a little dig at Justice for All, possibly. Right. <laughs> but um, his bass set playing on that documentary just sounds immense. Mm-hmm. Um, he's always going to be, that is my Metallica, is those four guys. And this is no disrespect to Rob. No, no, all. no. You know, Rob is great. Um, he does what he does. But if Rob was to hang up his hat and Jason came back, I wouldn't complain. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I think a lot of people echo that, but but yeah, the band has, has morphed to a certain extent. But but yeah, so many people, it's it's cast mm. in that classic mold, and you know, you see the high yeah. and low culture of the band in the studio. You see um, James playing Stairway on a twelve string. Mm. You also see him yeah. farting as well and declaring yeah. victory, <laughs> and it's just kind of the grubby and, yeah. and the elevated, you know. And it's just so cool to see them creating doing this work, creating this masterpiece before it takes over the yeah. world. And so many just studio little things that you don't even think about. Like, I love when we meet Scott, the keyboard overdub guy, playing on Unforgiven. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember quite who says it, but someone says it sounds like Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And it's just quite surreal yeah. to hear these kind of symphy proggy leanings on top of this you know, monster ballad. Well, I think that was originally Michael Kamen that was approached mm. to do stuff for that. And then... Um, I think he sent some stuff over and it didn't get used. And uh, you could tell by uh, Lars's reaction in the background, they weren't buying it at all. Because as Bob Rob says, like the guys at Anthrax would just take the piss out of them. Yes. <laughs> so having a, having a bit of a keyboard in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And like the the odd like elements of percussion that they put on the record as well, like um, on the God that failed, James is seen like tapping the trigger of a rifle, and they're all hitting all these odd yeah. little they, stuff that you don't even consider's on there, but he's in the fabric of the record. Yeah, you, I couldn't pick that out. No, I, you know you, you could listen to that CD, and I wouldn't know half of what's going on in there until you watch this documentary and just see the plethora of kind of percussion instruments that they've got going on. Mm-hmm. But again, that just comes back to the layers and layers of sounds and production that are going into that album. And just again, on the candid tip, like you see Lars and James eating in a restaurant with Bob and, you know, Bob saying five or six of these songs will be classics and, and Bob pushing for Holier mm. Than Now as being the single, which obviously wasn't one of those things. Perhaps, and he wanted it to be the intro track on the album as well, which I, I can sort of see that thought process. But I mean... Enter Sandman is so much, it's it's intro, isn't it? And it's the build and it's the rise of that riff that I don't know if holier than now, it seems a little more of an obvious choice, I think, for a, for an opener. Yeah, I think um, holier than now would be, for, at the time, maybe more traditional Metallica, whereas I think, I feel that maybe Lars and James, which who were aiming for this broader audience, knew that Enter Sandman was going to be a softer kind of, Yes. intro into that album so be, you know people might turn on holy and now and just go oh no that's just noise you know it's mm-hmm. just kind of people just smashing the hell out of their instruments whereas and the sound man eases you in obviously the second track <laughs> that, that knocks yeah. you back on your ass straight yeah. away but, yeah yeah um yeah and the sound man kind of teases you into it um the other bit around this kind of stage of the documentary is um my favorite 
moment from the whole thing. Oh yeah, is the unfor- unforgiven solo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, this is what made me fall in love with Kirk. Is Bob had Bob called his number and said, you know, this is a guy that doesn't do his homework, and you know, yeah, Bob Bob calls him a, Bob calls him a Bob calls him a wimp to the camera, which which I don't yeah. remember. Which, yeah. yeah, it's like the ghoul. But you know, fair play to Bob. He called it. He said guitar players will always complain about one sound, and it's the, one thing. It's the sound yeah, not working yeah. for them. And you know, he, he comes in. He goes, "Hey man, this sound's just not working for me." And then he dresses him down. Says, "Come on, then give me the you're the guitar solo player of the year. Give me it. Give me the solo." And knocks it out of the park. Probably my top third, you know, top three solo. Oh yeah, oh yeah, unbelievable solo. Yeah, I, lo- I agree. Legendary sequence as well. The building of this solo. Mm. You know, Bob says songs like this deserve solos like this, and he needs to eat, sleep, and breathe, and you know, put some time on it. And um, yeah, like you say, one of the first things a guitar player says is the sound isn't right. And Kurt complains about the rattling amps, and um, yeah, and there's there's a subtitle underneath. And we should say throughout the documentary, these little subtitles aren't they that come up that just kind of underscore mm. certain points, or if Lars says the wrong date, or if he's Crying. It's like this is Lars's Oscar performance or something like that. And yeah. the subtitle here is that this is where Bob's finally lost his mind. And you know, you hear the alternate takes or the initial takes for the Unforgiven solo, and they do kind of suck. Like they do kind of like oh, they don't they don't really capture the narrative, I'm, you know. I'm with Lars. Are you watching him curl up in a ball? Yeah, he puts his hands over his ears. Yeah, Lars can't can't deal and, with it. <laughs> you know, I I couldn't, you know, for the life of me, I couldn't come up with a, a guitar solo for any of those songs myself, but that one's it, it, i'm sorry it's terrible it, it's just yeah. awful yeah yeah and you know we get more uh studio back and forth the studio sort of cleared out as we move into the next section the mixing jason yep. shown dunking a basketball as well which is quote calling the empty studio uh biggest song of your career right here bob says about sad but true cashmere of the 90s uh, Lars requotes him. Uh, you know, we get to see Bob laying down the law as well, talking about the drums being too loud, the guitar's not loud enough. Uh, I love how I'm tired of arguing with you, and James is like, no, you're not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just yeah, just seeing them all uh, playing here, uh, the mastering sections, and then we get into again Metallica just doing things. Okay, maybe other bands did this, but I don't think on this scale, the Madison Square Garden listening party. Like, uh, how yeah. awesome that they just played the full thing. We're not playing, you know, they're not, I'm sure many people thought they might have come out and done a few sort of thing. And this is in the more innocent days, you know, no one would have been there with a, you know, I don't know, with a little recorder, straight feed to Napster or something. They could do that. And uh, what a moment, really. What, what, what a kind of original idea. Yeah, and, you know, on the internet, you'll always get people that can complain about anything. And they still manage to find one fan that complains Oh yeah, he feels cheated that the band didn't turn up, even though it was free. He felt ripped off mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that they didn't turn up. So you'll always find that one guy. Yeah, one guy uh, oh yeah, happy. But you know, it's, I think what fifteen thousand fans were in there, so yeah. they're going to make some noise. And to listen to listen to that album before it's been released, you know, it's just one of those moments you never forget. No, no, it's um, so cool. And, yeah, and even the band still come out and talk to everyone at the end. So you know, a, a, a great moment. Yeah, yeah. 
terrific moment. And uh, Tabitha Soren uh, is there as well. She's a little news piece. Great 90s rock chick babe there. And um, we get to see the manufacturing side as well. We see all the cassettes and CDs, the professional side, the suits, you know. Um, we learn about that process, which I love seeing. And then we're back at the record store. And, you know, what a wonderful time. What a great moment, really. What a different era. Just people going um, fantastically mental. Um, and, you know, we have videos within the video. There are full videos. And we get the Enter Sandman video, which, I mean, you know, if, if you ask me one of the most iconic videos ever, you know, bar genre. Like, I just think it's just a bewildering piece of entertainment, that video. Yeah, Sandman's up there, definitely. Um, Unforgiven and Sandman two great videos you know there's quite a few videos throughout the entire documentary um i think it was nothing else matters that's directed by the director of this um adam dubin i think his name mm-hmm. was dubin um but yeah definitely you know if you're not a fan of it the sandman then this may be not not not, not the documentary for you, it gets played a few times <laughs> it does it? it does uh, i think it, i think it was wayne isham actually who who directed it but um but yeah oh, okay but yeah you get kind of behind the scenes and you get to see like you know the all all the uh leds in their face and all the thrashing and how they achieved a lot of the effects and um you know james quotes skinnered as well like if you're talking about fishing that's okay but if you're talking about business fuck off and you know he's clearly at odds uh you know with that side of it um part one's kind of wrapping up now Lars talking about debut and you know how far they've come and as the credits roll and this kind of is in part two as well uh it's just a lot of the guys just fucking with the camera crew and not wanting them there which I which I really like like you know it's not it is a funny documentary don't get me wrong but this is a nice bit of kind of fourth wall breaking uh, as the credits roll yeah, absolutely. Um, I think they like to do that quite a few times is just say, oh, you're, you're a documentary crew. Well, well, surely you've got enough by now. Come on, it's time for you to fuck mm-hmm, off kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, kind of it just brings them a bit down to our level. So they kind of, at times they're superstar rock stars, but at times they're just us that like a beer and to fuck about. Basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see Lars getting his dick out and rubbing it on the back of Bob's coat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the crew getting filmed. Uh, Bob playing some bass along with Enter Sandman, which is really cool. And it kind of ends. Actually, yeah. part one sort of ends with Kirk like tossing over a plate, and that's kind of like that's kind of like the final shot. Yeah. Part one closes. They've got the um, they're jamming as well. With um, I got something to say. That's right. Kind of, yeah, um, yeah. The green hell. Yeah, yeah. At the first. First, I thought that was them. I thought that was one of their songs. So yeah. I thought, I'll, I'll find that on an earlier album. Um, but again, this was a, a portal into some of their back catalogue as well at the time. So, you know, part two, they play some of the older stuff. Um, so kind of yeah, just realising that they didn't start with the Black album. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to go back and find all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And then that's just a fantastic couple of years falling into that oh man oh yeah yeah that that discovery is uh yeah is just unforgettable so part two uh the smelting returns the you know the iron ore is here uh lots of news footage about prepping for the tour wayne's world is mixed in um hundreds of thousands of 90s metal dudes screeching in heavy metal parking lots there's even like them at urinals just like metallica just like pissing and looking over their shoulder like back at them that's it. It's like I've been, you know, I've been to a few gigs and it's nothing like that. When I no. go to gigs, you know, in England, we kind of queue up politely. We apologise if we bump into someone oh, yeah. and we walk in and that's it. Whereas these these fans, just constant screaming. It's insane. Okay, there's, 
there's one guy that I bless him. He just doesn't fully commit. There's a guy that tries to tip a beer on his head. You mm. can tell he really didn't want to do it. Kind, no. of just, kind of just soaks the front of his forehead a little <laughs> bit. But bless him for trying. <laughs> and we see the um, the construction of the actual show itself, the set. Lars saying that they wanted to fuck with the concept of arena rock, which they absolutely did. Mm. Uh, you know, wanted to challenge the way people saw these type of shows. Now, Mark, here is a weird bit, weird coincidence, weird splash of serendipity. So part two opens and we spend a lot of time at this one concert, which is the Assembly Hall in Illinois. This concert yeah. happened on the day I was born. Oh, really? Yeah, March yeah. March 5th, 92. So I was just looking through the tour dates, and I was like, okay, when was I? Oh, bloody hell. So, you know, as luck would have it, um, you know, Jason talks about the oneness with the crowd, uh, you know, in, in the snake pit and stuff like this. Now, Mark, here's something I was considering. Um, later in their career, so, okay, they kind of hadn't developed to this point, but... James made it very clear that he didn't want to do the meet and greets. That wasn't really part of his thing. And, you know, fair enough. And Lars and Robin Kirk were happy to do them. But this tour, they didn't have support. They essentially just had a giant meet and greet at the start, didn't they? With the camera backstage yeah. and, you know, them showing shots from the day. And, you know, they're just talking to the crowd. Like, uh, what, what, what do you make of this? Them just, again, Lars is saying he wanted to change Arena Rock. Dispensing with anthrax or whoever slayer and just putting themselves out there before they even put themselves out there on stage so to speak yeah it does feel sometimes maybe a bit of a not maybe a vanity kind of project mm. of i always felt like lars is the driving force of wanting to be out there again like i said earlier wanting to be as big a death as death leopard kind of thing he wants to be that superstar rock star he turns up late to the meet and greet lets the other guys go out first so then he can get the biggest round of applause from the girls and all that. You kind of you see, you see James. He doesn't. It doesn't look totally uncomfortable, but you know he teetering between comfortable and uncomfortable at some point. He doesn't. He, he don't know if he wants to be there or not. One of the quotes uh, I say a lot is um, what amusing anecdotes the kids have for me today is Kirk kind of walking down that corridor yeah. ready for the meet and greet. Um, but I think it's just they've always been. In those early days, maybe they were a bit arrogant and just thought, this, this is just all about us. Our album is big enough and heavy enough now just to carry the weight. We don't need anyone supporting us. We can just make it on our own. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, 224 shows on this tour without any support. And I'd be surprised. I'd love to watch some at the start and some at the end. Because I'm like, again, I know Lars can speak for England or <laughs> speak for Denmark or whatever. Yeah. But... Um, it, I just, I just question whether, yeah, they might just ran out of steam. One hundred and fifty. What are you going to say? Like, what are you showing from your time in Chicago or what? You know, people let us know because on YouTube a lot of them are available, so they are quite intriguing to watch. But um, yeah, you know, you see Kirk limbering up. It's quite cool when Lars is speaking to the camera crew. You can kind of hear his voice booming in the arena behind yeah. him. Uh, XC kicks in. That you know, they approach the show. I actually did find the. Um, set list online for this show so as I say it went down March 5th so yeah XC kicks it off End of Sandman, into Creeping Death, into Harvester, into Sanitary, oh my god just like fuck, just every classic, Sad But True Rome, Seventh Song was bass solo, Through the Never, Unforgiven then we had our little uh, Justice Medley, and the drum solo guitar solo, Nothing Else Matters uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Fade to Black Whiplash ends the first set 
and then master short version signature and in the second encore as well so they're playing for like two and a half hours and you get to see them talk shop after the show as well like talking the segue into bells and the master bridge and i i love seeing stuff like that yeah i think that is <clears throat> that is a solid show so i'm don't get me wrong i'm a fan of load some of reload and anger all the other albums but that, that those those albums that they had there for that show that's just 100 percent. you know there's no weak moments in that in that set list at all so you know, I, I i'd love to been able to go back and watch a show like that where they're just playing from those albums not that i wouldn't enjoy the the more recent stuff that came to follow but that that's a, that sounds epic yeah it is it is and um you know we then cut afterwards to the hotel the next day and there's just so many of these tiny little vignettes and it kind of captures life on the road where you meet people and then you're on the bus and you're gone i don't know about you i love the section where they're speaking to that girl who works at the hotel who wants an autograph for a brother because he couldn't make the show like it's just a nice little insight yeah i so i had a little google earlier there's not a lot of stuff online just to see if there's any kind of like little tidbits I could find out about documentary. And mm. I got onto a, a forum talking about that moment. And the consensus is that, you know, she did stuff to get a backstage pass with the, with the road crew and get the signatures for her, wow. her brother. So although, although it seems innocent, what you find out later about the road crew. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it, yeah, it, again, it's warts and all. Like, this is just how rock stars mm. are. And, yeah, we'll we'll get to the uh, the grimy underworld beneath the stage and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, but, but yeah, I just I just like that they, they showed that. And, um, mm. you know, we get sp- spoken to about Donnington as well. Uh, night, this is 91. Uh, we've actually covered the 95 Donnington show on the podcast uh, with Husey. Did that episode quite recently, so go back and check that out. This is, you know... It's kind of a moment in time, really. The Black Album is the last time where Metallica wouldn't just be the de facto headliner of wherever they played. So this is Donington, 91, Saturday, 17th of August. Listen to this. This is £22.50. So you've got the Black Crows at the bottom, who are a band that I'm actually getting into at the moment. Uh, I never listed them much, but I quite like them. Then Queensryche, then Motley Crue, then Metallica, then ACDC. I mean, that is j- truly monsters of rock right there. Like That's a hell of a lineup. Did those years, the ni- early 90s of Monsters of Rock, the, the lineups, because it just used to be a one-day festival mm. that obviously has now turned into Download Festival and multiple bands, but... The, the lineups for those used to be just epic. Uh, I, I'd, I'd be front and centre for that whole day for, for a lineup like that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we see footage from that. It's a very exciting time, but then they're on the airplane again. We get to see what they're reading on the plane. James is reading the Waterfowls Bible. Uh, Lars is reading a newspaper uh, discussing a review. Uh, Kirk is reading Monsters magazine because, of course, he is. And they hit on some turbulence. And uh, Kirk tells quite a funny story about uh, the nuns busting him for the magazine. And he revealed that it was his parents who read it. And sorry, his parents who bought it for him. You know, they wanted to tell him off or whatever. And he was like a hero at school. And then, yeah, just as we were mentioning it before, there's that scene of that cute journalist trying to get in and the, you know, the road crew manager being a bit of a weirdo perv, being like, oh, you've got to kiss my ring and all that. It's like, dude, like, but that, that that's the way it yeah, worked, you know. 
Yeah, that's Big Bob Bender. Mm. So he used to do security for the Rolling Stones as well before going over to Metallica. I so see. He's quite well known in those circles. And uh, it's always the quote of smell the glove. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a few, because <clears throat> there's a couple of fans, or not fans, but there's the guy that they go to that just, for some reason, reminds me of Dr. Nick from The Simpsons. It's got his little homemade, like his home camcorder that he turns up to. He's trying to blag his way through with blatantly while he's made up a press pass at home or something like that. Yeah. And he's being told, this is worth nothing, my friend. You can't come through. It's, he looks like he's just turned up to film some sort of dirty home movie with Metallica <laughs> uh, with a camcorder and tripod. Oh, <laughs> so I wouldn't let him through either. <laughs> no. But, um, yeah. Yeah, we see uh, Enter Sandman at the MTV Awards, you know, supreme mm-hmm. performance ever. There's a few awards ceremonies here. Um, it's interesting to see that. I don't know if you remember that song because it's, cause, you know, it's like also nominated and it's like Ugly Kids Joe, Everything About You. Do you remember that song? <clears throat> so Ugly Kid Joe, yeah. I was still um, a huge fan of. So Yeah, I, I only uh, know that song. I love that song. Great track. Was the chart smash. So they yeah. had kind of a couple that hit the charts, that one and one called Neighbour. Mm. Um, off America's Least Wanted album. Now, these were... I've met, I've, one of your pods, you referred to the Unforgiven solo as like a Hollywood solo. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. Get everything Ugly Kid Joe did, I would, I would refer to that, use that kind of term, but their guitar solos were ridiculous Hollywood-style solos, just shredding and yeah, good dive solos. bombing and mm-hmm. harmonics and all over the place. But that album, America's Least Wanted, were brilliant. So yeah, for me... Ugly Joe, I, I absolutely love them. Yeah, I'll check. I'll check so, them out. Uh, and yeah, I remember the the everything about you solo. The the final lick in that solo kind of mimics the mm. melody line. And yeah, it's really sweet. Yeah, good song. Uh, you know, we see some more fans here as well. Uh, fuck Tipper Gore, she sucks dick. Someone says, uh, which was a reference <laughs> yeah. to the sort of parental advisory uh, sort of thing. There, uh, every and there's like. They're interviewing all these, like, you know, these greasers or whatever. And it's like this really wise dude. And he's like, every generation will storm the next. And it's like, he just sort of comes out of nowhere, this guy. And, uh, you yeah, know. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know if he knew what he was talking no, about. No, I'm sure he didn't. It didn't no. make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> no, no, no. And we're at another award ceremony. It's a season four. We're at the Grammys now. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg's there. And, um, like, oh, man, amazing era for music as well. I think nominated against Metallica was, like, Bad Motor Thing and rust in peace and i'm pretty sure anthrax were in the mix as well um and they win the award and thank jeffro tool for not putting out an album which was great yeah. <laughs> uh and you know if you're going to talk about the kind of famous famous clips from this documentary we've already touched on one, the unforgiven solo and next up is jason sandwiches which a lot of people yes, talk about right I, <laughs> I have a big bullet point for jason Sandwich. okay let's go so... <laughs> So Jason Sandwich, you know, take it at face value. It's just a funny scene. Jason's being funny. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, after a few rewatches um, over the last few years, you start to realise that, okay, there was the, the hazing of the room service, like charging stuff to his room. So I don't know if, he's, if it's that penny pinching, sure. but maybe is he getting all that stuff? So because he doesn't want to spend any more cash because he's already paying enough for all the bloody stuff that they're ordering yeah. and sending to his room. But, um, yeah, that line, I've got plans for those millions and ain't for fucking sandwiches. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anytime I've got some cash in my pocket, then that will be a line I use. <laughs> Look, I, 
just personally, Jason, like I'm a big fan of a cheese board and sandwiches and stuff like that. So if that's your bag, I'm sure the quality of catering was quite high. So, you know, again, but no, it is just like, it, it's a very unbelievable, like if you told somebody who didn't know about Metallica, oh, this is multi-million Teddy's band, and the bass players just sort of packing away ham and cheese, like, you know, backstage, millions. It's like, yeah, I love it. You know, never change, that's Jason. It. It, it, it kind of uh, gives you that, again, why I love Jason so much, because he feels so grounded. So mm-hmm. there's a guy that's just walked in with a lobster. He's not picking up the lobster. He's just going for the cheese and ham sandwiches. That's all I need. You know, I don't want anything more. I'm not going to be greedy. And I'll take them up to my room. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, yeah. He, you know, Jason's always been, for me, he's always been one of us. He's a fan of Metallica. He always wore the T-shirt. He's one of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we discussed that in our Mega Histories episode with Jack as well. Mm. Like, Jason was always that guy who, you know, would shake every hand and, and, you know, thank every fan and sign every scrap of paper. And uh, we do get some fan interaction. Actually, just before this, there's some, like, stuff backstage about them talking about money and, 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 you know, percentages and stuff like that. And someone says, someone sings off-camera, Baby, I'm a Rich Man. Uh, Nice little Beatles reference there. Uh, So that just pops up. And, yeah, then we get all the fans talking to Metallica. People are like, hey, Het, whose idea was it? Da, 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 da. And, you know, there's lots of people getting reactions and Lars is getting reactions. And then there's that girl that we mentioned before. So this kind of classic rocker girl, this Valley girl uh, that said both times they came last, she was locked up. And then she meets Lars and she's like absolutely, you know, gobsmacked. She gets, sign my butt, man, is what she says. Uh, (laughs) Hella, she's called as well. Hella, Uh, yeah. yeah, um, He could spit on me and I'd still love it, is what she says as well. Like, these sort of early (laughs) 90s heavy metal interactions are gold. I love this element of the documentary. Yeah, there's no, he he doesn't shy away from her. Even when she says, oh, yeah, I I missed your last shows because I was locked up. Personally, I'd probably take a couple of steps backwards yeah, yeah, and yeah. just be a little bit concerned. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, then we push on further. The Moscow footage. I mean, you know, we're talking amazing metallic concerts. Like, this is one for the ages. Mm. Uh, Dave, early on in the show, we actually reviewed this show. So go back if you want to hear more in-depth stuff about the Toshino Air Festival. You know, you see the he- helicopter circling and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, I mean, ag- ag- again, just just mad to see, isn't it? Because we've seen this on YouTube so many times. But there's so many kind of, um, you know, iconic moments of Metallica that we're seeing through the behind-the-scenes lens, which I really like. You know, the camera kind of cuts through from the stage angle and uh <laughs> that that moscow crowd is like just a baying mob yeah depending on what articles you read and who, what interview you see like it's gone up to anywhere like 1.6 million people were there watching it um you know that ties into at the time of the watching that uh documentary there was an, another vhs tape that did the rounds was pantera vulgar videos mm. obviously they played the same day um, and just that, I think there, there was a video of domination by Pantera and just that the intensity of those songs was just ramped up with that footage of, you know, the crowd getting beaten, the helicopters swooping around, you know, you, you couldn't pay for that kind of stuff. So that, that, that's a perfect music video right there just for those songs yeah yeah no it is and um you know i I think it's the next day afterwards sometimes it's hard to tell exactly where we are but we're in a hotel there's beer cans on the floor and then they're waiting for the plane 
and Lars is being sniffy, but in a funny way, talking about like, you know, oh, the Grateful Dead had the MGM plane, GNR had that one, and, you know, we didn't have that one and stuff like that. And uh, he's like, is that Die Straits over there, you know, leaving? And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, Lars is just born to be on camera, isn't he? He loves it. He loves it, yeah. I think because um, they're talking about that and, you know, this is where they've hit that kind of superstar level now. You know, they're in the private Lear jets comparing who's got what. And then um, when they find out Dire Straits are still 10 minutes out, they're like, well, why the fuck are we waiting for a band we don't care about? Let's go. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's yeah. just uh, you get to see again the differing personalities in this band on the plane. Lars is reading about scuba diving, and you know he's taking his third level or, or whatever, and he's reading up on it. And you know we cut to him on a boat pointing out a map, and meanwhile James is slurping a beer, and it cuts to him in hunting gear going through the marshes. Yeah, and um, you know he, he kind of knows how to trigger people to a certain extent. I only shoot baby deers, he says. Shoot the eggs in the nest. Yeah. That's real hunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he did a documentary now if he'd be saying the same sort of stuff. Oh, God, um, no, but... I don't know if... It, yeah, uh, you know, everyone could be a little bit too woke these days, so I might get offended by that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a nice kind of uh, pull back the curtain and see what everyone does in their spare time. Um, yeah, yeah, completely. with the, the hunting and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you know they're um they're they took they're sound checking next. I think they're in Cincinnati and they hadn't played. Nothing else matters. This was the t- the day they debuted it, and they're saying that if they can get the double neck in time, that they can do it. You can hear big mix, uh, dulcet brummy tones ringing through the stadia, yeah. and then it cuts to them sort of rehearsing and playing and back and forth, back and forth. You know, and Lars says it's you know one of the best times I've ever pulled off a song on the first night, and that's surprising to me that. Okay, I know it wasn't a single on the off. That's probably why they were playing it. Maybe the you know, video had been released at this point or whatever. But, um, yeah, you would have thought that would have been just kind of locked in the set, I guess, from day dot, but maybe not. Yeah, I think um, one of the other things, that one of the other factors of that, pulling that off was I think they kind of haze Kirk about having to learn the intro for <laughs> yeah. it. So, um, it's kind of, yeah, as long as Kirk, the guitar player of the year, could learn that, that <laughs> intro, then we'll be all right. Um uh- we but, see. Uh, yeah, I think there's. Yeah. I was to say, I think there's a few songs that over the time they've struggled with live. I don't know if you saw the recent Howard Stern videos of them performing yes. Unforgiven, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably one of the best performances I've seen of them playing that song. Um, so I think there's a few songs like that that maybe because of the Black Album is so heavily produced and layered, it's they can struggle at times to reproduce those songs. Uh, in a live capacity. Yeah, certainly. And then if you take something like maybe Death Magnetic, it's just how complex mm. they are, you know, and how many, and, and mm. say Anger as well, like, you know, just, just, just how many different changes there are, how many moving parts there are in the song. Um, yeah, and, yeah. you know, all of the members get their own little excursions. We don't really go anywhere with Jason, um, but we do with Kirk. Kirk heading into yeah. the guitar shop, which is dope. There's a there's a dog at the desk watching him, <laughs> like on its paws. <laughs> And he talks about Exodus and, you know, forming the band and naming it. And um, he riffs on some little classical piece as well. And it's him in a hotel lobby watching like this kind of, you know, classical John Williams type player himself. And then he, you know, it's like he's watching this wonderful finger style nylon string you know, Marvel, and it cuts to him like rubbing his ass with the guitar on stage. Like the documentary likes to do that a lot, doesn't it? It likes to draw a lot of parallels, and they're often quite funny. 
yeah, I think it likes to show you how good they are, how serious they can be, but at the same time, they're just a bunch of kids that want to enjoy themselves as well. Um, you know, that, that kind of, where he's watching the guy play the classical guitar, that makes me think of, you know, does his appreciation for that come from kind of Cliff? You know, that, does that pull him back to kind of being with the, the, the way Cliff wanted to do things and Cliff's kind of methodical music treatment and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't um, really, um, yeah. didn't consider that. But, um, but yeah, it's funny you mentioned Cliff. I mean, we'll get to Cliff in a second, but just before we do, uh, we then see James in some, like, blues night in a dive bar. Yes. You know, pool is being played, jukeboxes are being juked. Uh, he's sort of riffing along. I wish we spent more time with that. Like it's just we sort of see it and then it goes. And I'm like, what was even happening here? Because I think the guy says like James Hatfield. Like he doesn't, he says it slightly wrong, or whatever. But it's weird. I, to think, see... I think he says Hatfield. Yeah, he does. James yeah. Hatfield. He says Hatfield, <laughs> and it's like you never see James with Stratocaster, and you never see him playing this kind of flinty Stevie Ray blues. So we get a little sprinkling of that, and then it's gone. But what, what did you think of that moment? So that for me kind of gave depth to James. So as far as I knew, Metallica. Kirk did all the solos. James did the riffs. And that was it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that James played the a solo on Nothing Else Matters before I saw it on that documentary. So I didn't, you know, I thought there was two types of guitar players. You did one or the other. You played lead or you played rhythm. That was it. You didn't mix the two. And then seeing him start to play like that, I was like, this guy is fantastic. You know, that's when I started to kind of, my love went from Kirk a little bit onto this guy that was creating these riffs and could just jam on the spot playing guitar just you know like i could only wish to play mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah and we then uh say cliff gets brought up kind of out of nowhere uh off camera someone asked james you ever miss cliff and you know he talks about after the show people coming with cliff stuff and Stuff that has Cliff's autograph on it as well, which must have been really surreal to see. And how everyone still remembers him. And, you know, he looks at some pictures that he has as well. And, uh, you know, I guess even though they're a giant band, Metallica maybe, you know, they weren't really legends at this point. Like, you know, Cliff is like, you know, still one of the guys, of course. But I guess back then, yeah, there might have been um, a danger, perhaps, that he... Not forgotten, but just kind of, you know, the band's pushing in a new direction. Maybe people aren't going to be interested in the history and stuff. But it's great to see that even then, I mean, of course he was, but he was just embedded in the consciousness of any fan. Yeah, I see. Again, getting into Metallica at that point, I had no idea Cliff was a thing. Yeah, yeah. I never knew anything about him until seeing that clip. And I was like, oh, there was someone else that was mm. in the band before then. And then, obviously, as you fall into finding out, you know, my mind was blown when I first found out about Dave Mustaine being a part yeah. of Metallica. Yeah. I was like, well, in the whole second, he's Megadeth, that's different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're wrong. You're right. you, you, you got mixed up here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got the wrong guy. Um, but yeah, you kind of fall into that history. But it was, you know, they didn't dwell on it too much, but it was nice that there was yeah. a nod. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was not. And they didn't really explain anything either. They, But it's not like they're assuming you would know. It's just this is the nature of the documentaries, going from thing to thing. And yes, yeah, someone asked about Cliff, and James has a nice little moment there. Uh, next up, it's Jason's birthday. Let's kill him, yep. Kirk says. <laughs> Let's <laughs> yeah. chop him up. It's like, damn. It's like one of your monster movies, bro. But um, yeah, and uh, then, you know, a little Jason talks about kind of, you know, wanting to play basketball or play blues with his friends and he's like I know it seems like thing you could always do but this is you know something that um, you know we're always touring we're always going everywhere um, and then yeah Jason gets pied and you know they have all these sort of shenanigans on tour and then we have Eddie Eddie who works on the crew Eddie who takes us underneath the stage yes. 
pulls out a lot of photos of Polaroids of girls. Um, points to mm. one. Everyone in the crew shot a wad on that one. He says they come and they go, and it's like, yeah. I mean, I get like no judgment, like, but it's just, I, and I, I like how they show this, but it, it is just wild, isn't it? Like, even though it's a mental documentary, we're still kind of seeing a sanitized version of what it really is. Yeah, I'm, you know, looking back on it, I'm surprised that got left in. Um, yeah. You know, like I said a few times, you wouldn't have any of that today. Um, no. Bands wouldn't be letting kind of that guy get any screen time. I know they try and make up for it a little bit later. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, I, there's no excuse to say it, it's of its time kind of thing. Um, but, you know, there's a camera in his face. He's got some paranoids. He might just be making a story up just trying to show off. Sure. Kind of, it may not have been anywhere near as cool as he was trying to make out. Um, but, you know, I I couldn't say that, you know, if I needed some backstage passes and Eddie was there, I don't know what's going to happen. No, fair, fair. I agree. And, you know, uh, Jason is spoken to as well. And it's, it's quite nice, actually. He's in this kind of empty arena as the crew is filing all the... Um, equipment out and he's speaking about cliff and you know being a gog in front yeah. of cliff and it's kind of like it's just a nice bit of um kind of uh you know poetic symmetry isn't there that he was this kid watching metallica and now he's in it and look at behind him they're you know yeah. just t- taking apart this monumental stage um and Lars starts to cry as well, talking about Jason. And this is where his Oscar, when I say cry, he's, you know, he's faking. His Oscar performance comes up as well. Uh, Lars talks of the tour, gives the wrong date. And at the bottom, you know, he corrects him again, saying, uh, wrong date, dick. You know, uh, that was sort of thing. Uh, we get to see Sad But True played in full as well at Oakland Coliseum. Really yeah. good performance. Mm, very, you know, Sad But True, I think, is my favourite song on that album it's the, it's the riff that um i bought a drop tone pedal for my guitar so it shifts the octaves down yeah. a little bit since i bought it turned it down that's the first riff and you know as soon as i turn my amp on it's always the first riff that i just chug away on mm-hmm. um you know i'll never get tired of hearing that song now um this next section i love uh it's quite a long section we're in our uh, our part of the world mark we're in london Mm. Old London Town yes. for the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. And we get to see Old Wembley as well before they tore it down. Yeah. Uh, which is a, just a kind of you know, classic. I mean, most people know it for like the FA Cup final football stuff, but obviously bands played there all the time as well. Um, there's a dude with fingerless go- gloves talking to the camera, <laughs> uh, saying we came in to see Metallica and GNR and Extreme. I mean, you know, I know, G- I know Metallica were only a little part of this, but I would actually love to do an episode just on the Freddie Mercury concert in general because, I mean, I love Queen. I love all the bands associated with I think it's a great moment in music. And uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was just, it just, you know, the fact that all the bands kind of collabed and Gary Sharon killed it and Joelia and all this sort of stuff. But um, I like the fact that we see that the boys aren't really happy when they're sound checking. Like James especially not digging the sound, like not loud enough. Yeah, I think this comes back to what you were saying earlier with the, them performing by themselves is they have total control over that. So they've done the TV performances where they've been told you can't be that loud and now they're in an environment where they have no say whatsoever. They're kind of small fish in this kind of pond. So um, there's, you know, watching the, the backstage footage of those just star after star kind of walking down, it, it's not their show. They're not. They, they, there's nothing they can do about it. 
No, no. Um, and we, I mean, mentioned Gary Sharon before. He passes Lars in the stairway, and we just get this kind of one-two. Like, you know, they have this little moment, which is cool. Kirk nerding out over Jimmy's guitar. From what I gather, I think there was a Hard Rock Cafe in the old Wembley. I mean, someone correct me out there. Because, right. because it Because they're in a Hard Rock Cafe, but they're in Wembley Stadium. And then there's, like, later they're being interviewed, and you can kind of see an entrance for it. Maybe that. I mean, you know, maybe there wasn't. But, um... We see the rehearsals, we see James with Slash and Joe Elliott and Brian May and, you know, all the camera guys are there. What an amazing summer. And Tony Iommi's there, Roger Taylor. I mean, John, even John Deacon there, who I'm pretty sure this show was his final full-length concert with Queen. I think he made a short appearance with them in Elton John in 97. But, yeah, you know, this is, you know, genius member of the band wrote so many songs. Another one, Bites of Dust, You're My Best Friend. Um, I mean, any Queen fans out there, he wrote a song called Cool Cat, which closes Hot Space, which is a just criminally underrated Queen record from the early 80s. Great song. It's kind of like the Lost Hall and Oates masterpiece, that song. And he wrote that song. And, uh, I mean, what, what did you make of seeing the rehearsal here? Seeing James rocking the single mic with bloody Roger Taylor on drums, Brian May, John Deacon, Tony Naomi. It's like, what, what is this band? Yeah, I, like I said, um, I think it was his last performance with Queen. Mm. I'm sure I remember reading something where he said, look, I'll do this, and then I'm done. That's it. You know, Fred's gone, yeah. not interested anymore. Um, so, you know, being a part of that last performance is something to put on your CV, something to write home about. Um, Tony Iommi being there, Brian May, you know, the fact that they'll never, you know, if you did that today... I don't know who you could get to be involved to be at that level uh, of that show. That was just everyone turned up. Everyone was there that you could think of. Um, it, it absolutely amazing. Yes, no, it is. It is. It's just kind of, uh, yeah, just kind of Mount Olympus. <laughs> the, the gods just mm. kind of around the table. I can't believe it. And um, they then head into like a proper English pub. And Slash is there with a bottle of Jack Daniels and uh, kind of a table is slipped. And James like, don't put that on me, dick, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's not quite clear what happens. It just kind of cuts and suddenly the table's just hitting James. And, um, you know, people outside are saying they've all came to see Metallica. And Brian May is the best guitarist in the world, someone says. And, you know, he's certainly up there, definitely. And um, they're introduced by John Deacon. Well, by the band, but John Deacon sort of says the last word and they rush on stage. And, I mean, the end of Sandman they're doing Wembley here is just extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like we said earlier, if you're not a fan of that song, this documentary probably isn't the one for you. But this is when they were riding the wave up. So, you know, what a time to play that song and get the reaction that they did. It, all of that leading up to it, the, the scene in the pub, it was just, you know, being a, at the time being a huge Guns N' Roses fan as well, seeing Slash and James together, I was like, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that bands knew each other. I didn't know that they yeah. were friends. I thought everyone just did their own job, and that was it. So seeing them hanging together in a pub just blew my mind. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you don't imagine it at all. And um, I love the angle as well. They have they have cut of the front angle of James singing, and behind him, Lars is just this mass of hair and fury. And you know, afterwards we get the. Um, 
interviews and we see one of my favorite people uh you know in music media vanessa warwick who did all the donnington coverage so we sort of covered her with the hughesy yeah. episode and she's great she's now works in property and does loads of vlogs about it and i've sort of followed her on youtube and the comments are always about headbangers ball and stuff like that they're never about like uh, you know mortgages or whatever but she's great she's talking to um jason and you know, James talks about how innocent Brian May is and still enthusiastic about pedals. And he's like, I didn't want to tell him they already had one. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and they do uh, Stone Cold Crazy, which is very proto thrash as a song, isn't it? Like that riff is like heavy. I didn't know that that, you know, at the time, I didn't know that was a Queen song. I just thought, OK, that's something they've all ripped together or that James has come up with or something like that. And then, you know, getting back in getting more involved in the Queen catalogue, it's like, oh, that was actually one of their songs. And, you know, the earlier Queen, they were a lot kind of heavier than the kind of pop. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the, the early the early Queen records are like madness, yeah. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, it's interesting that um, the GNR tour is coming up, the joint headline tour, and this gets spoken about backstage at this very concert, uh, oh no, we also get the Spinal Tap guys as well. I was going to say, yeah, just before that. Love yeah. that section. <laughs> oh my God, because they, they speak specifically about the Black Album. And um, I mean, I've only recently started watching Better Call Saul. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, right, yeah. But um, uh, Saul's brother uh, is, you know, what what I can't remember the names of Spinal Tap, the blonde one, Michael McLean. Yeah. And and that's him. I yeah. never realised that was him. And uh, they're great with them as well. You can tell that like James and Kurt, like for such witty guys, they just let them do it because you know what I mean. They just let them play their characters and have a really funny interaction. Yeah. So when I I have to admit, um, rather embarrassingly, that when I first saw this and Spinal Tap turned up, I thought Michael McKean was actually Bob Rock. So right. I thought that was Bob Rock. <laughs> on yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Michael McLean kind of, I think he was in something, I think he was in Short Circuit or Short Circuit 2, something like that. He was in Friends and a few other things. But yeah, I know him better now for Better Call Saul than obviously Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was a great moment, uh, kind of picking holes in Metallica of like, where'd you get the idea of this album from then? Uh, yeah. None more black. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and then the tour being announced, GNR's uh, you know summer jaunt of '92 with Metallica mm. again, guys. I mean, I feel like I'm advertising loads of Alpha Metallica here, but getting very meta. But I have done a tour diary episode where I went through each date, GNR and Metallica. Uh, so go check that one out as well. And oh man, these tailgate parties! So many bare breasts, so many <laughs> fuck yes screamed at the camera you know uh the the girls have spoke some girls have spoken to outside and they say we're not going to degrade ourselves and you feel they almost put that in as if to say like you know not all women are polaroid worthy kind of thing you know not all of them are going to subsume to that level uh and just kind of make up for eddie (laughs) yeah 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 for the just depravity of eddie uh it's like a disclaimer and um the logistics of this co-headline, you know, uh, James mm. doesn't pull any punches, really. Uh, talking about how someone wants a 20-foot ego ramp and someone doesn't and stuff like that. And I mean, I love when James goes down the rider, right? The cup of cubed ham and stuff like that. Yeah, that, so this was the first time that kind of made me doubt how much I liked Guns N' Roses. I was like, mm. hold on a second, James Hetfield doesn't like them. Oh, yeah. Take the piss out of them. Maybe I should dislike them too. In the end, I just kind of, I have my issues with Axl Rose, um, 
for the rest of the band, you know, it's nothing to do with them. No. You know, it's the it's the one pepperoni pizza, all the Pringles, bee honey, so we can sing like this and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. And I was like, right, if whoever James Hetfield doesn't like, I don't like them either. No. <laughs> uh, and Sebastian Bach is backstage interviewing them, yeah. kind of doing a Ricky Ratman impression. I'm trying to get drunk. Leave me alone, James says. And mm-hmm. um, you know, he he uh, he says Sebastian Bach says that he's Dave Mustaine as well, and does a little impression there as well. Which, you know, really funny. This sort of insight is just invaluable. And I love the fact the cameras are rolling. And then we got to see this. I mean, it made, it made me think as well, like, they must have, like, thousands of hours of footage that they could have made hundreds of different versions of this. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, what, what, not, not even, like, you know, stuff from Eddie's vaults, but I'm just saying, like, stuff from, like, on tour. Like, I'm sure every night had worthy material. Yeah, it'd be good. It, you know, it'd be great if, you know, a few years' time, Last turn around and says, "Look, I own all of the footage. I have it in a locker somewhere. Mm. So here's a part two, or part three, and part four of what we've already had. So I'd, I'd watch it for days. I'd, you know, I'd happily watch any kind of B-roll footage. Um, you know, there's so many people. It's like blink and you miss it. Kind yeah. of cameo. There's even, I think, at one point, Jim Martin from Faith No More. Yes, no, up. no, he's in there. Um, uh, you see George, you see um, George Michael as well backstage and, and yeah. stuff like that. But but yeah, you're right. They they Jim Martin, he's like Cliff's old mate. Like you know, they go back ages yeah, old. So it's it. like yeah, I'm sure they would have had a little moment there or something like that. And you know, Metallica they do keep all this stuff. And we are building up to the Black Album anniversary next year, so. Maybe. You never know. This is kind of the de facto Black Album documentary, hopefully, yeah. Um, And then kind of as it's winding up, we're following the GNR route. We're at the Olympic Stadium in Montreal, of course, the famous, infamous incident where James, you know, he's burnt alive, becomes like the Toxic Avenger, as Jason Newstead said. And, you know, riots are exploding afterwards. GNR could have saved the day, but... Obviously, Axel. GNR are one of my all-time favorite bands. We we just did a you know top GNR song episode on on the mm. feed, so go and check that one out. But um, but yeah, I mean the the kind of the prima donna dominated, unfortunately, and uh, couldn't do it. So therefore, uh, you know, Montreal was just um, burnt to the ground. Really, I mean, what a wild moment, right? Yeah. So that led to that kind of right at the tip of the cars. But all I can think of is. If you remember the guy with the plaster cast of how amped he was at the start, yes. uh, he's going to fucking kill people in the mosh pit. My God, I'd have stayed out of the way of him at the end of that. Uh, fucking, he must have been on a killing spree. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to you know, break my other arm. <laughs> yeah, comparing him to the guy in the fingerless leather gloves at the Freddie Mercury oh, boy. concert, yeah, the yeah, difference yeah. between that. Because you see that guy, you think, oh, look, he's, he's covered in leather and studs. He's going to be pretty metal, mm. and then he just sounds like kind of boring Norman from down the street. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the comparison between like American fans and English fans, you know, it's no different from the, watching movies in the cinema. I know American guys; they'll be whooping and cheering in cinemas where we're very quiet. Yeah, the the, chuck, the Americans they to anyone that makes noise. Yeah, they love to get loud in the cinema. I don't know what that is, but yeah, us yeah. Brits. Oh my god, that is anathema. Yeah, don't, definitely don't do that. And uh, I mean, talking of um, of slings of casts, it then cuts to a live "Nothing Else Matters" performance uh, with James just singing and John Marshall up there. Um, I thought what was cool was because you get to see him rocking the solo because I think you know ninety nine percent of the solos are Kirk, but in this case he yeah. plays the James solo, which is quite nice. And you get to see him doing that, and you know he, he just 
sheds a bit of light on on that era of the band, kind of the close of the tour when you know they just powered on. I'm sure if Axl yeah. Rose was caught in a fire blast, he just would have you know hibernated Chinese democracy style. But they kept moving. They had these dates to fulfil, and um, that yeah. pretty much wraps it up. Really, again, like part one, it ends with the guys being open to the camera, um, you know, tearing down that wall, uh, again, smelting the processionals and kind of where they are at their career and what they're looking forward to. And, um, yeah, it just kind of it doesn't end on a kind of grand note, does it? It just kind of not not fades out, but it just kind of just retreats, I guess. It, it almost fades to black. It, wow. Like. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, kind of just a few nuggets over the credits and the usual, like we said earlier, with Lars talking, breaking the fourth wall and talking to the camera. And, uh, yeah, just saying, oh, that, that you're a documentary cube. That's what you're doing. Yeah. But, you know, these guys are used to having cameras around them 24-7. You know, um, I know sometimes, like in some kind of monster, it probably shows that, the cameras get a bit much at times, which you probably would for anyone. Yeah. Um, but I do hope, like we mentioned earlier, that there is some extra footage that can one day come to light and just flesh it out even more. Yeah, I mean, there is... Um, I mean, I just watched it on YouTube, uh, but there is a DVD release. I don't know if that has extra features or not. Have you? Uh, do you own that? Yes, yeah, so I bought the Region Zero DVD from America. Mm. Um, so... Uh, I thought, okay, there'd be some brilliant extra stuff on there. But, you know, a DVD can only hold so much information. And as you're rocking in at nearly four hours, that takes up pretty much the the whole DVD. Um, So there's not been anything, because I've noticed, you know, I'm always looking for documentaries and stuff about Metallica, but they all seem to pull snippets from a year and a half of life. Yes. So there's a Black Album documentary and, you know, it's just taking all the bits of Kirk and the guys talking. So this is kind of like the granddaddy of all the other documentaries mm-hmm. that kind of mm-hmm. followed. No, no, you're um, right. And, uh, you know, as we always do, guys, we open it up to you on the Twitter at Metallica pod. I was just asking, uh, you know, what your thoughts on this documentary. Dr. Bass said, saw it when it came out, but never saw it again until last year, believe it or not. One of the truly great music documentaries highlights include Bob Rock getting the unforgiven solo out of Kirk, as we mentioned, the guy from make a wish getting to meet the band and Jason's glasses. A podcast and a CD says, my favourite doc of all time. Seeing that when it came out made me a dreamer of being in a band music full time. Ralph says, an amazing document to the glorious Black Album era that covers both the studio and live venues. Also contains all the spectacular The Black Album videos. Got this on the first day of its release and now have it on VHS and DVD. Biggest treat is watching them work on a masterpiece for an album that would change metal and the band's trajectory forever. One highlight for me is Het saying he wouldn't ask Lars to do a drum solo if his arm fell off during a disagreement. Just gold. Danny Derryberry says, didn't watch it until 2000. It's been a staple of mine for 20 years. Favourite scene goes to the solo recording Unforgiven. That's production gold. I think, yeah, definitely agree. James says, man, I've watched it so many times. Don't even know where to start. Seeing how they recorded it is fascinating every time I watch and it's had an impact on how I listen to music. Sava Bloody Podcast says, an incredible watch. Those lads were driven. I love watching how Jason takes their bullshit in stride and always seems to be enjoying the moment. Those cheeky little private moments they catch him with, the I've got plans for my millions and it ain't for fucking sandwiches. Uh, David Masters saying, this is the origin of me wanting to be a record producer. I've owned this on every format, save for Laserdisc, give me time. There are so many awesome lines from the, oh, the camera's on, Code of the Roadman, Bob used to be a woman, Hello Girls, Are You Sad Lars? Uh, kind of sounds like Emerson, Lake and Palmer. They paint white lines so you can't drive there, but they don't actually put anything there like fucking nails or anything. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people outpouring of joy towards the mo- till this documentary is unsurprising. It is a masterpiece. I mean, can you think of any other music docs that rival this in terms of kind of just penetration into the inner circle? Like, no, um, you know, apart from some kind of monster, which again is Metallica. So um, there's, you know, I've tried watching, looking on YouTube and stuff like that. There's nothing out there that's hit me like this one. Every, it's very easy for production companies to get involved, management companies to kind of have too much say over stuff and show you what they want you to see. But this kind of, although it doesn't go too deep into the alcohol side and the drug side of things, it's still pretty warts and all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, guys, that's pretty much about it on the documentary front. Uh, let us know what you think of this release, A Year and a Half of Life in the Metallica. Uh, MetallicaPod.com. Get in touch with me there or also at MetallicaPod. If you have enjoyed this show and you want to give back to the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, as I say, or go over to Patreon as well. Um, you uh, do a podcast yourself, is that right? <clears throat> yes, we do. Maybe not as popular as your your very good hey. podcast. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, just do a podcast with some friends. It's basically we get together. It's called the Friday Night Beer Club, mm-hmm. available on iTunes and some other mediums. And we just get together, have a few beers, talk about films, movies, music, and, you know, just general affairs, what's going on in the world. And uh, it's not a high-grade podcast by any means, but if you just want to hear some idiots talk rubbish, then jump on, give it a go. Friday Night Beer Club. Okay. Uh, just, yes. I've just found you guys now. Uh, episode 55, Holy Crap, It's a Flying Shark. Is that the last episode? Yes, there you go. <laughs> that kind of sets the tone. <laughs> okay, cool. Um so yeah, guys, that is out there now. Uh, go check that out. If you haven't watched this documentary or if you want to relive it, it did get uploaded to YouTube recently in a 4K upgrade. That's how I found it. And I think it's only been up a few weeks or a month or so, and it's already got like 20,000, 30,000 views. People are always seeking out. People have always got this on repeat. And uh, yeah, it is a kind of cornerstone document. So um, stuff for the show. Um, you know, always working on new material. I'm going to be working on another mega histories. You know, we've done Jason, we've done Rob. I've, uh, yeah, we, sorry, we've done Cliff. I keep forgetting. Uh, maybe do Rob next. Maybe do a Bob Rock episode or something like that. I'm not quite sure. I want to take the directions. Pretty much done with the compilations. I've got the Lulu one to do and the miscellaneous songs as well. But um, yeah, go back through the archives. Of course, the original mission of the podcast is complete. Doing all the songs in alphabetical order with guests around the world. Uh, yeah, subscribe there. Check out Pun It as well, my competitive wordplay game show podcast. If you just can't get enough Tom Quee podcasting in your life, uh, but yeah, this has been a great episode, man. I really appreciate your time on here, and uh, yeah, people go check out the Friday Night Beer Club, right? Yes, please do. Even if you just um, retweet it and don't listen to it, just uh, get it out there for us. And uh, not that we're going to retire and become millionaires off it, no. but um, you know, just get out there a little bit and. Uh, interact with people yeah yeah so uh mark anything else to promote um no that's it if you've got anything you don't disagree with or don't agree with then i'm on twitter at white rocks i've been you know through tom's fine podcast i've found the telecast and metal up your ass podcast um shout out to ralph you know i've started following him on twitter great yeah so um ralph, yeah it's nice to get involved in, I will start talking to people eventually. I just want to get this out of the way, kind of break my cherry, and then um, I can start chucking some opinions out 
on Twitter to people and uh, get chatting. So, um, all right. yeah, that's pretty much it, man. All right, all right. No, no, no this, this has been great. This has been great. So, uh, yeah, guys, again, check out the doc if you haven't seen it or if you have, go watch it again for the 35th time. Go make yourself a Newstead sandwich and uh, enjoy whatever you're doing out there. But, uh, Mark, thanks again. Thanks, Tom. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.